My name is Julie Stolzberg. I'm 43 years old. Today is February 26, 2016, and we're at Mount Sinai Hospital, and I'm with my friend Abby Pogrebin. I'm Abby Pogrebin. I'm 50. It is February 26, 2016. I'm at Mount Sinai with my friend Julie Stolzberg. So let's start with some of your earliest memories, where you grew up, what the house was like, what the neighborhood was like, siblings, kind of the basics of your childhood. Okay. Um, Well, actually, Craig and Emmy and I and Ty and I still live in the apartment that I grew up in. We live on uh, 98th Street and West End Avenue. It's the apartment that I was born into. Uh, My parents lived there for their whole lives until they both passed away. And then um, Jenny and I both inherited the apartment, so we've lived there between the two of us ever since. Does um, it look the way it did? Um, it's had a few different uh, sort of formations because there are four of us living in a one-bedroom apartment, so we've had to be creative. Um, the back master bedroom had been separated at one point by bunk beds, and so my sister had the top bunk and had her sort of loft room, and I had the bottom bunk, and I had a little cave set up. Um, we took that down when Craig and I were getting married, but we're considering putting it back up for Emmy and Ty. Tell me a little bit about your sister. So how close were you? What's your age difference? And what was your relationship growing up? Jenny and I are five years apart. So growing up, we weren't super, super close. Um, we obviously became much closer when my parents passed away and as we became older. And right now, obviously, I think we're the closest that we've ever been. Um, but we both were sort of at different kind of developmental stages in the five-year difference. So we were never in the same elementary school together. We were always kind of a little bit one-off. But um, What about, like, her interests and your interests as kids? What, what was your focus? What was hers? I was really into dance and into art and creative arts, and my parents were sort of pseudo-hippies. They would have these dinner parties in our apartment, and they would have a different theme each week, and it would be like Moroccan night. And their friends would come over, and later on I learned that they were all getting high, which I didn't realize was going on. But um, so my parents definitely were supportive of the arts. Um, I remember definitely taking, like, um, a creative movement class that I loved. Um, and Where was that? It was on, like, 83rd, right off Broadway, I want to say, I think. But kind of a random place. It wasn't yeah. part of a school. Or... No, it was just like, actually, I was in the brochure, and I remember distinctly, there's a picture of me like on the cover of the brochure, and you can see my underwear, and I was thinking, what kind of place puts a girl on the cover of the brochure with her underwear sticking out? I mean, I was like a little girl, but still, I was like, that's still a little questionable. That you were on the cover, Julie. But I was very creative, so I guess that won out the uh, wardrobe. And Jenny's interests were more? She was into dance for a little bit. Um... She definitely um, sort of found her niche with her school friends, more so at Dalton than she did in our public school. So she definitely kind of got into whatever her friends were doing. So if there was theater, she would do theater. Um, But she was more social, I would say. So what were you like as a child? Like, how would you describe your personality? I was pretty shy. Um, It's kind of hard to believe. (laughs) I know. Especially knowing, like, Craig was the same way. But um, I definitely was always described by my parents as being sort of shy and on the quiet side and um, being more sort of... Reflective? Yeah, I think so. Like, I would do a lot of, like, journal writing. I had a lot of tons and tons of 
um, journals, and I had two very close girlfriends, and we would take our journals out to the, like, the 79th Street Boat Basin, and we would sit there for, like, hours. I don't know what we were doing wow. with, like, a box of Stelladora cookies, and we would be very serious, and we would be writing. So I'm sure there was some, like, boys involved or something, but... Do you have those? I do. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And... I mean, you are a great writer. Was that something that was a strength of yours when you were younger or a focus? Other Not than the that I was aware of, but it was something that I enjoyed doing. I mean, no one ever read, obviously, my journals that I know of. Um, but so it was just more for myself. I think I just enjoyed the process of it and feeling like it was my kind of special place. And um, even doing it sort of parallel to my friends, we all had our own separate journals. So nobody knew what anyone else was writing, but it was sort of this ritual that we would do together. Wonderful, and you would sit on the bet bo- basin like on a bench, looking out at the water. Oh, no, we were actually very naughty, and we would climb over the, the, the like the barrier, the barrier, and there was this like concrete. I mean, it wasn't going anywhere because I'm not that. I'm pretty chicken, but it was a concrete kind of like outshoot on, on like very close to the water. I'm sure so. that still is there. No, probably. Yeah, I think when when, when my friend's best friend's uh, father found out that's where we were going, I think we were definitely uh, told that was not a good idea. No, yeah. no more. Um, you were at school. Just give me your kind of grade school trajectory. You started at I went public to, school. I went first. I went to the um, Morningside Montessori School on top of a um, synagogue on 100 Street and West End Avenue. I'd also gone to a, a cooperative parent, again hippie <laughs> preschool, where I think I sort of have these visions where we would go to different people's houses, maybe, and we were jumping off radiators, and parents would so like. Batman capes for you if that's what you were into but I did that for a year and then I went to the Morningside Montessori school where I tortured my father every morning and he would bring me to Montessori school every morning and every morning he would come in and I would cry and cry and cry didn't want him to leave and then we sort of had this ritual where I would walk him to the elevator and he said that every morning he would stand at the elevator and the doors would close like this and he'd see my sobbing face every day (laughs) And then he'd come to pick me up, and I wouldn't want to leave. Wow. And he said this happened every day. And he would say to me at the end of the day, I don't understand. And he said, every day, you never want to leave. And yet in the morning when I drop you off, you're sobbing, and you don't want me to leave. And he said, I don't understand. So I think there's been some payback for that with my own children. But Did that help you a bit when you became a teacher? Do you think just knowing I, that you had that kind of I think so. And I do share that story often with parents that that sometimes happens, and that's sort of some kids – way of letting that parent know, I guess, maybe how much they love them and are torturing them. But they can also equally as much love their school experience and have a great day and how kids are very resilient and are able to sort of compartmentalize. So it was sort of like, I just needed that ritual of the doors closing. And I was like, okay, time to move on. Like, then I understood like, okay, school's going to go, he's going to work no matter what. So I might as well enjoy it. And I, I loved school. And, you know, they would describe me as being really happy at school. And they would say, you know, my dad would say, well, does she ever do this? Or does she ever, does she seem grumpy? Or does she ever, you know, protest cleaning up? And they're like, no, she's always the first one. And he'd always say, are you sure you're talking about, you know, my daughter? And they're like, yeah, same girl. So I often do say to parents that kids can present very differently at school than they do at home. And so after Montessori, you go? Then I went to PS75, the Emily Dickinson School, right down the um, street from our house. And it's on 96th and West End Avenue. Um, and it was sort of your typical Upper West Side public school, very diverse, um, huge, huge classes. I think at one point I was in a class of like 38 kids. Mm. And I do remember feeling sort of because I was 
tagged as one of the smarter kids or the smart kids, the teacher would basically sort of hand me the box of reading assessments. And she would say, you know, go up to Aqua. And then she would hand me the answers and say, score your thing. And I would score my own work. So I don't know how much I was actually getting out of that experience. I loved it. Like you were teaching yourself. I think I was looking back, but I enjoyed it. And I loved Mrs. Takagi. So I would have done anything for her. And I also understood that there were a lot of other kids in that class who needed more help than I did. So I just kind of, I never, I don't think I ever I wonder if that was the seeding of your career as a teacher. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I do remember it being significant having a Japanese-American teacher in elementary school. How come? I don't, I just think because she was such a role model for me. My my mom was, I don't know if she became good friends with her or if she knew her before I was in her class, but we would talk about as a family how significant that was. So definitely race was something that my parents talked about openly um, and I think wanted my sister and I to have an appreciation for. So tell me about race in your family. Who were your parents in terms of that? And tell me a little bit about them, what they were like. Sure. Um, my dad was born in Los Angeles, California, and um, he had uh, one older sister who was about 12 years older than he was. And they were interned during World War II, and they ended up on the Santa Anita racetrack. And my mom was born in Seattle, Washington, and her family was also interned, and they were in Minidoka in Idaho. When you say the racetrack, explain what that means. So my father's family literally lived on a racetrack for at least a year. I think it was supposed to be a temporary housing, and it ended up being a little bit longer than they had expected. Um, and Do you he, know what the houses were like? Were they shanties? I were think they? they were pretty much. He said you could see on the ground there was no floor in their house. It was just the racetrack. Wow. But he would talk about the day that they had to um, leave their homes to go to the internment camps. And my dad had just been given a pair of roller skates, which he really, really loved and really had waited a long time to get. And his parents told him, we can only carry what we can, you know, we can only bring what we can carry. And he was pretty young. So he, they said, you have to give these away to somebody. So he said he went up to the street um, and he found this Italian girl who he had had a crush on. And he gave her his oh, roller skates. Incredible. Yeah. So how many in his family moved in? Um, well, his family had owned a um, grocery store in California, so they had to give that up and just leave that totally behind, knowing that they would never get that back. So I think that was pretty So how old is he when he's in the internment? So he was born in 1935, so he would have been seven, I think. Wow. My mom was born in 1939, so she was younger. She doesn't remember, obviously, as much. But my dad definitely would talk about um, the food and the experience of, their, of being in the camps. He was, uh, I mean, he was a great eater, but the only food that he would not eat as an adult was okra because it was a food that he associated with mm. being in the camps. And was he hungry, Was or is that not part of the memory? It wasn't so much the, the hunger. I think it was just the not having any choice. That it was that was what you had to eat, and he did not like that. He didn't like the texture of it or whatever. I, I, to this day, I've never tried okra because I sort of felt like out of respect. If that was the one thing that my father didn't like, then I was not going to like. I was going to stand in solidarity. Um, but yeah. So he got released. When did they get back to a life? I think in '44. So I think it was about a total of two years. I think that's correct. I maybe. Mean, and they know. didn't meet obviously in that time. No. No, but they had sort of parallel kind of experiences. My mother's family um, 
my grandmother, I believe, was single when she went into the internment camps. So she had um, two daughters that she went into the internment camps with. And then she, while she was in the camps, she had this bright idea that she was going to marry this chef in the internment camp. And somehow he was going to be like her money ticket. So she married who I came to know as my grandfather, who was not actually biologically my grandfather, um, this man in the internment camps. And uh, Remember his name? His name was Jack Fujiwara. So she took on that name. And um, turned out he liked to bet a lot at OTB and did not really speak any English and was sort of the opposite of a money ticket. He was actually a, sort of a money suck, which my grandmother later on revealed that she was regretful about. But um, so that was the man that I actually grew up thinking was my grandfather. And while they were in the camps, uh, my grandmother got pregnant once. I believe she had like a stillbirth mm. in the camps. And then she had another baby um, with this man, Jack, who's my Aunt Melinda. So I have an Aunt Sylvia, who is biologically my mother's sister, and then my Aunt uh, Melinda, who's sort of, I guess, like a half. And your mom's name? Joyce. Joyce. Joyce Fujiwara. And your dad? My dad's name is Victor K. Haraga. So they were four years apart or five years? They're five years apart. Five years apart. Five years apart. So when do they meet? So they meet in New York City um, at Grand Central Terminal on a blind date. They were set up by some Japanese church youth group leaders or something. And, of course, my dad recalls that it was sort of love at first sight, and he saw her in Grand Central Terminal, and he knew that she was the one that my mother had, like, a slew of other boyfriends kind of on the line, and she wasn't so sure. And so she basically tortured my father for several years before they actually really went out. It's a long time. Yeah, it was a long time. She almost married this other guy named Singh who is not Japanese. I can't believe you remember his name. Well, we, I have, well, like, like legend. from him. <laughs> I mean, not from, from me, but that I wore, that he had given her, yeah. Okay, so they he had finally... a very different approach to his, um, I don't know, trying to woo my, my mother than my father did. So this gentleman would buy her flowers and send her chocolates and buy her jewelry. Kind of like Craig. Yeah. And my dad would um, write these long letters on giant art pads and fold them up and send them to her. And she would just get these letters and letters. She was like, what the hell is, who is this guy? And he finally wore her down. Um, and she was taking an art class and she needed help. And so she said, why don't I call this guy Vic? And then she called him finally and they went out and then they started dating romantically. And do you know where they got married, Their where their wedding was? They got married at Riverside Church and they had their reception at Tavern on the Green. Wow. Yeah, my mom had very... Um, That's fancy fancy taste, way above her means, and she was also very specific about what she wanted. So she told my father what ring she was going to get from Tiffany and what, so there wasn't a lot of choice, and in some ways I think that was probably easier for my dad, um, but probably a lot for him to have to live up to, but she definitely wanted to live well. Yeah. And they were good looking, that's, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're beautiful, so I imagine the genes started there. Was she known as a beauty? I think for her, I mean, I think at that time they had these kind of weird, like, Japanese, like, sort of coming out parties, or they would have these, I remember seeing um, several formal photographs of these sort of, like, dinner parties or dances where everybody was dressed up, and to me it looked like they were all going to a wedding, but I was young, um, and they all had corsages, and everybody was Asian, so I assumed that they were Japanese, I don't know, maybe that's how she met Singh, um, but it was definitely a different era 
And I think it definitely sort of in response maybe to the war of trying to sort of Americanize. Separate, yeah, and try to sort of Assimilate. identify as being kind of of a different class and maybe not being someone who would have lived on a racetrack. <laughs> did did she work and did and what was his job? Um, my dad never got his college degree. Um, he was accepted to Columbia University, and then his father became sick. His father had, I believe it was lung cancer, and so he was not able to go to accept um, the, the spot. Yeah, so he had to go to work. I know that he worked at the Boulevard Watch Company for a while. Um, that was one of his jobs, and then eventually he landed at Butterick and Vogue, which is kind of a random um, sewing pattern company. Um, he had no interest in either sewing or patterns, but he was a salesman for them, and he worked there until he died. Hmm. And your mom didn't work where she did? My mom um, became a school teacher, was a school teacher. So she taught um, elementary school. She taught in parochial schools in the city and in public schools. So then she gets sick. Tell me about what, how that all happened and how old you were. So my mom um, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was seven years old, but it took them at least, I remember it being like maybe three months for them to actually identify that it was MS because it was such a newer disease. So basically by process of elimination, that's how they decided that's what she had, but she was... Um, not feeling well one day at school, which was very unusual for her. And she called my dad at his office and said, you need to come get me. And he went up to the Bronx somewhere to go get her, and he took her to the hospital, and they didn't come home for for many, many weeks because she was undergoing all of these tests. Um, and then finally they decided that she had MS. And do you remember that time when she was in the hospital for weeks? I don't remember logistically, like, who came and took care of us and who fed us, but I do remember feeling this, you know, kind of wondering of why it was taking so long and sort of this disruption of our family routine for sure. sure. And then how did it progress? Um, It progressed much more aggressively than what had sort of been told to me, especially as a seven-year-old. I have a very vivid memory of our family kind of going to what I now look back and think probably was a, a therapist, and the therapist sitting down with my sister and I and he had this sort of red, cartoonish-looking book that I think was meant for children to explain what MS was. And I think on the very first page it said, um, MS is not a fatal disease. And I was a very literal person, so I thought, okay, good. You don't die from MS. And um, so when my mom did die seven years later, I I remember being in the ICU and thinking, wait a minute, didn't that book say that she wasn't going to die? Um, so there was definitely that kind of disconnect. Mm. So she died when you were 14. Yeah. And can you talk about that a little bit and what, how you think it formed you and what you remember of that time? So prior to her actual death, she had been in the hospital quite a bit. Um, as I said, the disease had progressed very aggressively, so she became paralyzed um, much sooner than often people are or if they ever become paralyzed um, she was blind at the end, mm-hmm. and then she, eventually the paralysis had moved to her lungs. So she had been in the hospital quite a bit. So I had sort of, in a way, gotten used to her not being at home. My sister was in college. Um, so in some ways that transition wasn't physically such a shock because she hadn't been in the house. But obviously it was a major, major loss. And 
Do you need a break? I just need a drink. Sure. I'm pretty interested. It's quite a story. So you were really the one at home when all that happened. And not to dwell on it too much, but just when you look back at sort of your, I think, strength as a person and your independence, um, do you see it as formed then? And how much did you feel like you had to take care of your dad? I am amazed at how actually much my father was able to take care of us. I never felt neglected. I never felt that he was absent from my life, although I'm sure he did spend quite a bit of time in the hospital with my mother. But he somehow managed to raise my sister and I with humor and love and in a way that we never felt, although we were sad and disappointed and obviously very hurt by what was happening, we never had a feeling of, you know, kind of woe is me or let's kind of feel sorry for ourselves. It was always just sort of like this is what our life is. Um and let's just keep on, on living it. So he attended church every Sunday. I think that was a place where he felt a lot of comfort. Um, I was not a particularly religious or spiritual person, but I had a really good social network at church. Those were my girls who I would go out and in, uh, write in our journals with. So that was very helpful to me, I think, too, to kind of have a, a network of friends. So we didn't ever really talk about my mom, but they knew her and they knew about her. And I think I found that to be very comforting. Whereas when I was at Dalton, I was sort of new to the school and nobody knew that my mom was even sick and she didn't come to any school functions because it wasn't really wheelchair accessible. And I sort of did, I think, keep that to myself. I think that was sort of kind of my story. And I was new to the school and trying to fit in and I felt like maybe that wasn't going to help me fit in so much. So I don't think I was very open about sharing. Did he keep your mom in the conversation of your family, did he talk about her much, or was it more the opposite that he... Very much so. I mean, after she passed away, she was always sort of at the dinner table and in ways that were both funny and sad, but mostly as if she were still alive. So my dad would tell, you know, sort of embarrassing stories about her, and I felt like that was very... um, just sort of giving us permission to see her as a real person and not that she was on this pedestal and although she was a great woman and I did certainly look up to her, but that she was a regular human being and that we could talk about her and she could be with us if she couldn't be with us physically. And did he remarry? No. I always kind of wished that he would, um, and I encouraged him to date people. I don't even know who I was I had in mind. I'm sure I didn't think anyone was good enough for him, but um, he never showed any interest. Yeah. And he died when and how? He died... Um, when he was, I think, 58. Um, and he had had, he had actually suffered a massive heart attack the year before that I was born. So in 1971, he had um, triple bypass surgery, which was really, he was the second person um, to ever have this surgery by the same surgeon who had operated on Arthur Ashe. Wow. So he had spent about six months recovering from that surgery. And then the following year, my mom got pregnant with me. So it was kind of, I think in some ways I was this like miracle baby. Um, but um, so he, I think the stress of caring for, caring for my mom over the years, both physically and emotionally and mentally, I'm sure took its toll on him and he did not take very good care of himself. Um, he was a smoker and 
it was kind of the one thing that I felt like I couldn't take away from him. So I never really chastised him, even though I felt, you know, like probably not a great idea. Yeah. But he didn't drink. He didn't do anything else. He didn't have any other vices. So I kind of looked the other way, which, you know, I sometimes look back and maybe regret. But he did have another heart attack um, when I was actually home on winter break from college. I was a junior in college. And he, of course, he was also very quiet and personal. So it turns out that um, he had been coming, walking home from church one Sunday and sort of stopped and didn't feel well and tell anybody, including myself or my sister. Um, and then he went to the doctor and the doctor said, yes, you have some kind of a blockage. And he was scheduled to have a catheterization. Um, and he had that procedure. He went home. I went back to college. And I remember distinctly him putting me in a taxi cab and saying goodbye to him. And sort of for a split moment thinking, you know, what if this is the last time I see him? And then a week later, I got the phone call that he had died. Mm -hmm. And so you were how old? I was, I guess, 17. I was a junior in college. So you were very close to him, would you say? Very close. How would you describe that relationship looking back? Um, I think because my sister was away at college when my mom had died, I became very, very sort of I wanted to take care of him. I didn't want to go to college far away, even though he encouraged me to. So we ended up kind of compromising on Connecticut College, which was far away enough. But I practiced the very first day walking to the train station and getting home. I didn't actually get on the train, but I wanted to make sure that I could get on the train by myself and get home to my dad if I needed to. So you're at college where? In Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut. And that was after Dalton was just high school? Yes. Well, Dalton, I went to, I came in seventh grade, and then I graduated in 12th. Tell me about Dalton for you. Um, well, you break? Yes, Sorry. please. How are we on time? Just so I know where we're Okay. Keep going. You good? Yeah, I just have a really dry mouth. Sorry. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, hold this. Um... So I entered Dalton in seventh grade, and my sister had come to Dalton ahead of me, and she loved the school. She couldn't say enough good things about it. She had great friends. And I came in sort of this sort of transitional year, um, and I could not say enough bad things about it. I did not love Dalton in any way. You know, I was not Jewish. I was not wealthy. I did not live on the east side. I lived above 96th Street. I wore Oshkosh Bagash overalls and, like, you know, Chuck Converse high tops and thought they were really cool. And everyone else was wearing Benetton sweaters and Coca-Cola and guest zip, zip jeans, you know. Um, and so I just didn't ever feel like I fit in. Um, I found good friends and, you know, later in high school found one very particular close friend who came in ninth grade. But that seventh grade year for me was kind of torture. And I actually so much so that I applied out from Dalton, my dad was sort of one of these people who kind of was sort of like, you do whatever you want to do, even though he probably had stronger feelings about what would have been good for me educationally. So I, on my own, applied to the School for Performing Arts, for art, um, and I got in, and then I had a good friend who was going there for dance, and she wasn't the smartest person that I knew, and I would just sort of look at her homework, and we would talk about what her academic experience was, and I quickly realized that I would be really sacrificing a lot academically if I chose to go to the school. So I decided not to transfer. That's a pretty sophisticated decision, judgment to have made at that age. 
looking back, I guess so. I don't know why I, I felt, perhaps because education was so valued in my house, and I felt that my mom especially would have probably been disappointed if I didn't pursue Dalton. I think she took a lot of pride in the fact that her daughters went to Dalton to this prestigious um, you know, private school. I don't think my sister and I really had any idea what we were getting ourselves into. My mom definitely did, and I don't think my dad really knew either. He just sort of went along with whatever my mom said. And then it improved socially and the feeling there, or did you not I, end up ever loving it? I don't know that I ever loved it. I began to love my teachers. I really developed very, very close relationships with my teachers. Um, I loved the dance program there. I was involved with DTW, and Randy Sloan was a huge influence in my life, and she sort of took me under her wing, and she knew the whole story about my parents. Um, so I definitely felt nurtured and loved there. I just didn't feel like the other kids there really I could ever sort of identify with. I always felt like, you know, people were saying things like, you're so nice, but I could never bring you home, or I would never bring you to the prom. You know, it was still sort of in this, which is sort of shocking to think that people felt that because I was Asian, that that wasn't an option for them. So that really was active at that time, that prejudice. It was. And then, you know, five years later when we had our fifth year reunion, sort of a whole bunch of these guys were like, oh, we should go out. We should. And I was sort of like, wasn't it just five years ago that I couldn't, you know, meet your parents or that you would, you know, that I was really nice and I could be your friend, but we could never date sort of things. So I don't know if having gone to college, people felt more enlightened or I don't know what changed, but. So you graduated what year? I graduated in 1990. And was there any doubt about going back to teach there because of your feelings about the population? Oh, I was never going to step foot in the building ever again. So and I was happened? never going to give them any of my money. I remember saying I will never donate a dollar to this school. Um, well, I guess what really ended up happening is that I was very committed to public school education because I had gone to public school. My mom had taught a public school. My grandmother taught a public school. So I, um, after graduating from... Connecticut College with a degree in dance therapy and education, decided that I was really going to pursue teaching, but in a public school. So I, um, oh, okay, <laughs> take another drink, sorry. So after um, college, I got my first job teaching at the West End Collegiate Preschool, which I think was where... Ben and Molly went, mm-hmm. um, and I taught there for a little while, and then I also taught at the Lycée Francais for a year, um, and I remember the headmistress saying, if anybody asks you how old you are, do not tell them, because I looked so young, um, and then I decided that I really was committed to education and wanted to pursue getting my master's, which now, looking back, I probably should have waited to have a little bit more experience under my belt, but I was just sort of like, I'm ready, this is what I want to do, so I talked to people in... Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, because, of course, I had a boyfriend who lived not far from there, so that seemed like a perfect place to go. Um, And I was deciding between applying to Lesley College and Harvard for education, and everyone said to go to Lesley because it was a much more practical experience if I was young and wanted to teach. So I went to Lesley College um, and at the same time worked at the King Open School, which was a public school, a charter school in Cambridge for a year. And I couldn't tell you anything that I learned in any of those graduate classes because I would teach all day from 8 to 3, and then I would go to graduate courses from 4 to 10 at night. So literally, I was just nonstop. Um, But I got my master's degree in about a year and a half, I guess I would say. Um, 
And then I got a job teaching in the public schools in Newton, Massachusetts. And I loved it. You know, it was just sort of being having my own classroom, um, being Miss Haraga. It was just kind of everything that I had dreamed of. And then you end up at Dalton. <laughs> yeah. So when I was at uh, teaching at the birth school, my sister got pregnant. And I was so excited to become an aunt. And um, she had my nephew, Ben. And back in the day, people still had beepers. So somehow I managed, I didn't have a cell phone, but somehow I got my hands on a beeper. And I remember being at Drumlin Farms on a field trip with my uh, first graders and getting this beep that my sister was going into labor. And I think I left, I mean, I, I told the, the principal that this is the plan. So I left the kids at the farm with whoever was there, got in my car, drove straight to New York City, um, got to the hospital before she had been, um, and sat with her for a few minutes, and then she was going into sort of serious labor, and I went into the waiting room and then came in back in, and, and there he was. And Ben was really my first my first baby. And you decided you wanted to be near them? Is that why you took Yeah, I ended up coming, driving back and forth pretty much every weekend, and at some point I realized this is ridiculous. So that following year I moved back to New York City to be with them. Yeah. So you were, I just have to say, on the record, the most extraordinary teacher in the world, and I really mean, I think you changed our children's lives, my children's lives. What, what do you think was, be immodest for a minute, what was your gift? What is your gift as a teacher, your approach, your... I think it's that, that I don't think that I know everything. I think I'm, I try to be as transparent with parents as possible, um, to let them know that, you know, certainly before I had children, I would say, you know, look, I don't have my own children. So you truly are your child's first and best teacher. And I still believe that of all parents. So I can sit here and share with you my observations or what I think might be happening. But ultimately, we have to work together as partners on this. It's not my telling you, look, this is what's wrong with your child. or This is, you know, this is the problem. But really looking at the whole child and saying, you know, these are all the things that I love about your kid. And then here are some things that I think we could probably work on. Um, so you and Dave were sort of ideal parents because you were so open um, and honest about your relationship with your kids, the kinds of things you were seeing at home, and that only enhanced, I think, our relationship as teacher and parents to make your kids' experience the best it could be because we really could be honest and sort of say, like, look, I'm having a hard time with this. Like, I don't know what to, you know, I don't know what to make of this. Can you help me? And I think that's often helpful in a relationship between parent and teachers is for the teacher to go to a parent and say, look, you know, I don't know everything. So can you, you know, maybe you know more than I do, or maybe we can sort of talk this through. Let's get to Craig so we don't run out of time. <laughs> um, I remember when that was just beginning and it happened a little bit, it had to happen secretly. Yeah. But how did you kind of, like, notice him and then when when did you begin to really know this was going to be the guy I was a little slow on the uptake we met the very first day at orientation at Dalton and we had our sort of technology training and we were sitting I guess next to each other and so we sent our first emails we had to send these test emails to each other so he was my partner for that and right away I thought he was sort of this cute hunky guy I sense that I was older than he was, so I sort of assumed that he would already have a girlfriend or that he would be interested in girls who were younger than I was, and I had sort of had been in this tormented, terrible relationship that I sort of thought I was going to save this guy, so I had my own kind of um, responsibilities that I had to take care of, but I did um, 
always, I think, have a thing for Craig. I tried to set him up with my associate teacher one year with a, uh, a girl who I thought was very cute and did yoga. And, you know, there's like, what's not to love about her except that she didn't shave her armpits, which now looking back, which is not a good choice. Yeah. Huge demerit. But um, and I remember sort of being like on the outskirts of their kind of, of he, I remember him giving her a card of, she was a Red Sox fan. And Craig is a big Yankees fan, and so I remember him putting a little like red sock in her little mailbox and thinking that that's a that's a catch, like that's the kind of guy you want to have. Um, but eventually, I came to my senses and I dropped the guy who I was never going to save anyway. Um, and he was dating someone else, and their their relationship ended, and the timing was just kind of right. And can you talk about your first like official date? There's a lot of contention about who asked who on our official date. I, to this day, say that I invited him out on our first date, but he will say that he perfectly set up the circumstances so that I could ask him out on our first date. But I did invite him to a movie, um, and we were going to go see Ray on a Sunday afternoon after he had done Dribble. And then I guess he had talked to his roommate, Danny, who said that is a terribly depressing movie. Do not go see Ray. You should go see Polar Express. So I remember meeting him at the 87th Street Gym, and still on the bus ride across town, talking to my friend Jessica, who lived in Boston, and saying, I think I'm going on a date with a PE teacher, but I'm not really sure. And when he came downstairs, he was wearing, like, real pants and real shoes. And I'd never seen him wearing real pants and real shoes. He always wore sweatpants and sneakers. So that was the moment when I decided, okay, we're on an official date. Um, so we went across the street, and we went to a restaurant called Peche Pasta. And... I am not a drinker. I'm allergic to, to any kind of alcohol. I do not have the enzyme to break down alcohol. But for some reason, I ordered a glass of wine. So I take that as a sign of somehow me sort of feeling like I will do anything for this guy, including get drunk, um, which I did not even, I don't think, took one sip of. But we had our first date there. Um, and I think what sealed the deal is that I had brought mini peanut M&Ms to the movie theater. That's and that move. was really what won him over. So. So can you just just describe him a bit as a husband, a partner, and as a dad? So I need the tissues. Um. I couldn't ask for a better partner. Um, he is the most loving, um, kind, funny, um, humble caring person that I've ever met. Um, you know, growing up, I certainly looked up to my father and felt like there was nobody as good as my dad. And I, essentially, I think I married my father, which I'm sure there's probably a few therapists out there who would like to talk to me about that. But um, Craig is sort of my perfect person. We always say that, you know, you're perfect for me. Um, but he is just... As a father, you know, he always makes time for the kids. He finds ways to make them feel good about themselves, and he will get down on the floor no matter how tired he is and play trains with Ty. Um, he'll shoot baskets with Emmy until his arms are sore, um, and they know how much he loves them. And I feel the same way. There's never been a day that I've ever felt that he didn't love me more than the day before. So when you think about the future a bit and you think about your kids and what would you want them to know that you feel about where things are and what he's going to be carrying? 
I guess I would want them to know that, you know, certainly marrying their father was the best thing I ever did. Um, and I feel very confident that he will keep me alive in the same way that my dad kept my mom alive, that he'll tell stories and he'll make fun of me and <laughs> tell them how slow I was at eating and, you know, all the tissues that I would used to leave around the apartment. Um, so I know that he will do that for me, and so I feel I take great comfort in that. I think also in my own experience of having lost my parents, you know, I know that you can go through great sadness and still be a very happy person. Um, so I'm happy for them that they will have that, but it does make me sad as well to know that I'll be missing, you know, big moments in their lives, their weddings, and that I know that Craig will find a way to get me there. And if there's just any lesson that you think is just like a key lesson that you could, that you would want to communicate, that they, maybe not now, but they would have it, about life, about getting through the hard moments, about loss. I think I would just want them to know that, you know, each day is a new day and it's a chance to make mistakes, it's a chance to, to love, it's a chance to, um, you know, appreciate each other and that none of us are perfect and I certainly am not a perfect person, so I don't want them to try to remember me as being a hero or somebody who, you know, fought this brave fight. I mean, there have been plenty of days where I've said to Craig, I can't do this or I can't go on. And he's, you know, acknowledged my frustration or my sadness, but he's always picked me up both physically and um, emotionally and helped me to just keep going. And so I would want that for them to just know that it is, there is great sadness and there is great loss, but it doesn't mean that you can't have great love um, and it doesn't mean that you regret any choices that you made and I guess finally for each other like the relationship that they have and what they'll be for each other what would you kind of want to tell them about what a sibling can be I guess I guess same way that with my sister I would want them to know that your relationship can change and so maybe in the moment if you're you know really annoyed by your brother or your sister that maybe in two years you'll find a way, you know, to be closer. So to not to not, not be open to that and to know that you can, you know, maybe later on they will find ways to connect and maybe it will be over the loss of me or um, maybe it will be over basketball or something else that they share in common. But I hope that they will also um, use their love for each other to kind of get through sadness and to support Greg and to um, to want him to be happy. Do we have time for one more? Just in terms of their birth, if you can just talk a little bit about what those days were like so that they know. Um, well, Emmy was born um, in December of 2008. She was a planned C-section because I had had, um, what did I have? I have a center previa. Um, so we knew that she was going to be born on that day, and I remember both Craig and I just being so excited to start our family, um, 
and really being able to be in the moment of being new parents. Um, we just spent a lot of time, the, both the two of us and the three of us, in those early days because um, we had to be in the hospital for several days, and then it turned out that she had a little jaundice. We ended up staying a little bit longer. But it was just sort of this magical time of us growing as a family um, and just, you know, looking forward. I knew that Craig was going to be a great dad, so I just sort of couldn't wait to see what what that would be like. Um, and then Ty was born um, on August 23rd, 2010. And there's sort of this game that we play with him. Um, it's called Danny Zuko. I don't know why. And um, to, you know, we played it just the other morning where he gets underneath the, the comforter of our bed. And we, one of us, usually it's me who narrates, and we say, today is August 23rd, 2010, and it's a hot day in summer, and we're waiting for our son to be born. And he kind of pops up underneath the blankets, and we say, oh, I see a foot, or I see an elbow. And then we count his ten fingers, and we count his ten toes, and then we talk about um, how excited we are for him to be part of our family and um, what we should name him. And so somehow early on, he thought Danny Zuko would be a good name. These days, he wants to be called Ty. Um, but it's kind of this very sweet um, ritual that the three of us have. And I guess in some ways, you know, it's obviously ironic because five days after he was born um, is the day that I was diagnosed. And in terms of how they've dealt with your illness, what would you want them to know about their strength and their joy, frankly, the fact that there has been a lot of joy. Yeah, I would say there's been more joy than sadness. Um, and that's one thing that I feel that the closer I get to um, leaving them, that it worries me because there hasn't been as much joy as there used to be. Um, but I do want them to know how their resilience sort of kept me going. Um, and I think for Craig, too, and that they have just been an amazing source of love and in their honesty and in their moments um, where, you know, Emmy will say, you know, I, I miss the old mommy. And I'll say, yeah, I miss her too. Or Craig will say, remember, or Ty will say to me, remember when you used to get down on the floor and play with me? And I'll say, that's okay, mommy. We can just play on the couch now. Um, so just those moments of there being, you know, kids and being totally honest um, remind me that it's important to, to be in the moment with them and to not try to fast forward and try to give them these, you know, very philosophical statements about what life should be, but just to keep it at, you know, where they are at that time. I hope they know also just that the outpouring that you've had from friends and is not, has never been about compassion. It's been about what you've inspired in people, that it's, you know that it's been extraordinary. I think none of us have ever seen it, and it's because of who you are, who Craig is, and just the love that you've inspired and how many people you've touched. It's kind of amazing uh, in your 43 years, and I hope they know that. They will know it. Anything else you want to say? 